Hello, welcome back to the American History Podcast. So, I'm sure you've gathered we're doing a quite a bit of like politicasts that are politically or government related, and I think it's important that you know with everything that's going on in America that we do highlight you know how our system works and all these different aspects of it, so that way we can better understand what our role as the citizens are that live in this country and how we can try and influence and have an impact on government through the institutions that are in place. So today we're going to talk about the presidency. So the presidency is established by Article 2 of our Constitution, which asserts, you know, that the executive power shall be vested in the president of the United States of America. And so this is sometimes called the vesting clause of the Constitution. And so the president's executive power is underscored in Section 3 of Article 2, the take care clause, which confers upon the president the duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And the president's oath of office at the end of section one uh, obligates and then empowers the chief executive to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So, seems to require, you know, that the president, you know, is to take action uh, and doesn't exactly specify any limits to that action. So, if constitutional government is threatened in some way. And President Abraham Lincoln, he cited that oath of office as justification for him suspending the writ of habeas corpus in 1861. He declared that his oath would be broken if the government was overthrown. And he said, you know, suspending the writ is necessary to prevent, you know, that calamity from taking place. And by vesting the executive power in the president, Article 2 also implies that the president serves as America's head of state and is therefore entitled to special deference and respect. So in Europe at the time, the chief executives and heads of state were monarchs and presidents are not monarchs, but as the holders of executive power, they might appear to be entitled to the kingly respect that is due a head of state. So on the basis Of Article 2, presidents make use of three types of powers. So these are the expressed powers of the office, implied powers, and delegated powers. And there's a fourth type of power claimed by the president does not appear in Article 2, and that is the inherent power of the office. So the expressed powers of the presidency... uh, fall into several categories, being military, which uh, provides for the power as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. There are judicial, which uh, provides the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. Diplomatic, which uh, is the power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties, uh, also to receive ambassadors and other public ministers. 
executive. So the president is to see to it that all laws are faithfully executed. It gives the chief executive power to appoint, remove, and supervise all officers and to appoint all federal judges. Legislative is the other category. So it gives the president the power to uh, participate in the legislative process. So with military power, uh, the president's powers are among the most important that are exercised by that office. So the position of commander-in-chief makes the president the highest military authority in the United States with control of the entire defense establishment. Now, the president is also head of the nation's intelligence network, which includes uh, not just the Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, but also the National Security Council, NSC, the National Security Agency, NSA, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, and there are a lot of well, less well-known but very powerful international and domestic security agencies as well, like Interpol, things like that. And so the president's military powers extend into more of that domestic sphere. So Congress has made... a. Uh, This is an explicit presidential power through statutes directing the president's commander-in-chief to discharge uh, obligations. And the Constitution restrains the president's use of domestic force by providing that a state legislature or governor, when the legislature is not in session, must request federal troops before the president can send them into the state to provide public order. Yet, that proviso is not absolute. So, first, presidents are not obligated to deploy national troops merely because the state legislature or governor makes such a request. So, more important, the president may deploy troops in a state or city without a specific request from the state legislature or governor if the president considers it necessary to maintain an essential national service during an emergency, enforce a federal judicial order, or protect federally guaranteed civil rights. And... One historic example of the unilateral use of presidential emergency power, even when the states don't request it, is the decision by President Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1957 to send troops into Little Rock, Arkansas, against the wishes of the state of Arkansas, and that was to enforce court orders to integrate Little Rock Central High School. So the governor of Arkansas at the time, Orville Falbus, he had posted the Arkansas National Guard at the entrance to Central High School to prevent the court ordered an admission of nine black students. And after an effort to negotiate with Governor Falbus failed, President Eisenhower reluctantly sent 1,000 paratroopers from the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division to Little Rock, and they stood watch while the black students took their places in the all-white classrooms. And in most instances of domestic disorder, whether from human or from natural causes, presidents tend to exercise unilateral power by declaring a state of emergency. So, for instance, like President Trump did, in response to the three hurricanes striking America in 2017, making available federal grants, insurance, and direct aid. And so, looking at judicial power, the presidential power to grant reprieves, pardons, and amnesty evolves power over all individuals who may be a threat to the security of the United States. Presidents may use this power on behalf of a particular individual, as did Gerald Ford when he pardoned Richard Nixon in 1974, for all offenses against the United States which he has committed or may have committed. Uh, 
So, or they may use it on a large scale as President Andrew Johnson did in 1868 when he gave full amnesty to all Southerners who had participated in the late rebellion. And referring to the Civil War. So, President's use of the pardon power can be very controversial. President Trump was criticized for pardoning a former Arizona sheriff, Joe Arpaio, after Arpaio was found guilty of criminal contempt for ignoring a court order that directed his office to halt illegal racial profiling, profiling practices. Sorry about that. And the pardon was criticized because Trump did not first consult with the Justice's office, Justice Department's Office of Pardons and it was issued before Arpaio had been sentenced. So... The president is also America's head of state. You know, it's chief representative in dealing with other countries. So having the power to make treaties for the U.S. with the advice and consent of the Senate, as well as the power to recognize other countries. Diplomatic recognition means that the United States acknowledges the government's legitimacy and territorial claims. In 2015, President Obama restored American diplomatic ties with Cuba, which had been severed by President Eisenhower in early 1961, after the United States' relations with the Castro regime deteriorated. And this was like just before JFK took office. So in 2017, after several staffers at the U.S. Embassy in Cuba demonstrated neurological symptoms after being exposed to strange sounds, some blamed these sonic attacks on the Cuban government, which prompted President Trump to revisit newly restored American ties with Cuba. In 2018, President Trump met with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in an effort to defuse tensions on the Korean Peninsula. And earlier in that year, North Korea and America had exchanged threats in the wake of North Korean nuclear missile tests. In recent years, presidents have expanded the practice of using executive agreements instead of treaties to establish relations with other countries. Now, an executive agreement is exactly like a treaty, but because it is a contract between two countries, but it does not require Senate approval. So there are actually two types of executive agreements. One is the executive congressional agreement. So for this type of agreement, the president will submit the proposed arrangement to Congress for a simple majority vote in both houses, usually easier for presidents to win than the two-thirds approval of the Senate that's required for a treaty. So, the other type of agreement is the sole executive agreement, which is simply an understanding between the president and a foreign state and is not submitted to Congress for approval. Now, in the past, sole executive agreements were used to flesh out commitments already made in treaties or to arrange for matters well below the level of policy. But since the 1930s, presidents have entered into sole executive agreements on important issues when they were uncertain about their prospects for securing congressional approval. For example, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Ta Trade, GATT. It's one of the cornerstones of U.S. international economic policy in the post-World War II era. This was based on an executive agreement. And the courts have held that executive agreements do have the force of law, just as if they were formal treaties. Now, the Constitution focuses executive power and legal responsibility on the president. The most important basis of the president's power as chief executive is found in Article 2, Section 3, which stipulates that the president must see that all the laws are faithfully executed. And Section 2, which provides that the president will appoint and supervise all executive officers and appoint all federal judges with Senate approval 
After some early controversy, President's sole power to remove executive branch officials was accepted. So the power to appoint the principal executive officers and to require each of them to report to the president on subjects relating to the duties of their departments makes the president the true chief executive officer or CEO of the nation. The president is subject to some limitations because the appointment of all such officers, including ambassadors, ministers, and federal judges, is subject to a majority approval by the Senate. But these appointments are at the discretion of the president, and the loyalty and the responsibility of each appointee are presumed to be directed towards the president. Another component of the president's power of chief executive is executive privilege. The claim that confidential communications between a president and close advisors should not be revealed without presidential consent. And presidents have made this claim ever since George Washington refused a request from the House of Representatives to deliver documents concerning negotiations of an important treaty. Washington refused successfully on the grounds that, first, the House was not constitutionally part of the treaty-making process, and, second, diplomatic negotiations required secrecy. So although many presidents have claimed executive privilege, the concept was not tested in the courts until the 1971 Watergate affair, when Richard Nixon refused congressional demands that he turn over secret White House tapes that congressional investigators suspected would establish his complicity in illegal activities. In United States versus Nixon in 1974, the Supreme Court ordered Nixon to turn over the tapes. The president complied with the order and was forced to resign from office. The United States versus Nixon case is often seen as a blow to presidential power, but in actuality, the court's ruling recognized for the first time the legal validity of executive privilege, the holding that it did not apply in this particular instance. Subsequent presidents have cited U.S. versus Nixon in support of their claims of executive privilege. Now, the president plays a role not only in the administration of government, but also in the legislative process. So, two constitutional provisions are the primary sources of the president's power in the legislative arena. The first of these is the portion of Article 2, Section 3, providing that the President shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. Delivering a State of the Union address may at first appear to be little more than the President's obligation to make recommendations for Congress's consideration, but as political and social conditions begin to favor an increasingly prominent presidential role, each President, especially since FDR, began to rely on this provision in order to become the primary initiator of proposals for legislative action in Congress and the most important single participant in legislative decision-making, as well as the principal source for public awareness of national issues. The second of the president's legislative powers is the veto power assigned by Article 1, Section 7. So the veto is the president's constitutional power to reject acts of Congress, making the president the most important single leg- legislative leader. No bill vetoed by the president can become law unless both the House and the Senate override the veto by a two-thirds vote. In the case of a pocket veto, Congress does not have the option of overriding the veto, but must reintroduce the bill in the next session. Usually, if a president is presented with a bill and does not sign it within 10 days, it automatically becomes law. But this is true only while Congress is in session. 
If a president chooses not to sign a bill presented within the last 10 days of a legislative session and Congress is out of session when the 10-day limit expires, instead of becoming law, the bill is vetoed. So, use of the veto varies according to the political situation each president confronts. Though not explicitly, the Constitution provides the president with the power of legislative initiative, the implied power to bring a legislative agenda before Congress. The framers of the Constitution clearly saw legislative initiative as one of the keys to executive power. Initiative implies the ability to formulate proposals for important policies, and the president, as an individual with a great deal of staff assistance, is able to initiate decisive action more frequently than Congress with its large assemblies that have to deliberate and debate before taking action. With some important exceptions, Congress depends on the president to set the agenda of public policy, is required to submit a budget to the Congress. In the case of the budget and other matters, initiative confers the power of being able to set the terms of discourse in the making of public policy. Now, the list of expressed presidential powers is relatively brief, but each expressed power has become the foundation for a second set of powers, so-called implied powers of the office. So an implied power is one that can be said to be necessary to allow presidents to exercise their expressed power. Um... Presidents have also made much of the very first sentence of Article 2, which declares the executive power shall be vested in the President of the United States of America. This grant of power, along with the subsequent admonition to presidents to see to it that the laws are faithfully executed, as well as the President's oath of office, have been cited by successive White Houses as justifications for actions not expressly sanctioned by the Constitution. In recent years, the vesting clause has been said by presidents and their advisors to support what has become known as the theory of the unitary executive. Now, unitary executive theory holds that all executive power inheres in the president except as explicitly limited by the Constitution. Thus, according to this view, the president is a sovereign subject to some restraints, such as Congress's control of revenues, its impeachment power, and its power to override presidential vetoes. Some proponents of unitary executive theory also maintain that presidents have their own power to interpret the Constitution as it applies to the executive branch and need not necessarily defer to the judiciary. And this theory especially holds that the president controls all policymaking by the executive branch with Congress willing wielding only limited, if any, direct power over executive agencies. Only presidents may exercise discretionary authority over the actions of these agencies. So this idea has been the basis for such presidential programs as regulatory review that we're going to discuss in a little bit. And so the president is, of course, a unitary chief executive, but the principle of constitutional checks and balances would appear to provide Congress with powers over the many important agencies of the executive branch through what has come to be called Congressional Oversight of the Executive. Article 1 of the Constitution gives Congress a number of powers, including the power to appropriate funds 
to raise and support armies and navies, to regulate interstate commerce, and to impeach officials of the executive branch. Article 1 also gives Congress the authority to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. So congressional oversight, which includes legislative hearings, investigations, studies, and reports, is arguably implied by this language. So if Congress is to carry out its constitutional responsibilities, it must possess the ability to obtain information regarding the activities of executive branch agencies and officials. So many of the powers exercised by the president and the executive branch are not found in the Constitution, but are delegated powers, products of congressional statutes and resolutions. Over the past century, Congress has voluntarily delegated a great deal of its own legislative authority to the executive branch. And to some extent, a great the delegation of power has been an almost inescapable consequence of the expansion of government activity in the United States since the New Deal. And given the vast range of the federal government's responsibilities, Congress cannot execute and administer all of the programs it creates and the laws that it enacts. Inevitably, Congress must turn to the hundreds of departments and agencies in the executive branch or, when necessary, create new agencies to implement its goals. So, as they implement congressional legislation, federal agencies collectively develop thousands of rules and regulations and issue thousands of orders and findings every year. Agencies interpret Congress's intent, promulgate rules aimed at implementing that intent, and issue orders to individuals, firms, and organizations to impel them to conform to the law. When it establishes an agency, Congress sometimes grants it only limited discretionary authority, providing very specific guidelines and standards that must be followed by the administrators charged with the program's implementation. Now, in some instances, congressional legislation is not very detailed. So often Congress defines a broad goal or objective and delegates enormous discretionary power to administrators to determine how that goal is to be achieved. Agency administrators have the power to draft rules and regulations that have the effect of law. And the courts treat these administrative rules like congressional statutes. And at least since the New Deal, Congress has tended to give executive agencies broad mandates and to draft legislation that offers few clear standards or guidelines for implementation by the executive. So the executive branch under the president's direction has wide discretion to make rules that impact American citizens and businesses. Now, presidents have also claimed a fourth source of power and they're not specifically in the Constitution, but they're said to stem from the rights, duties, and obligations of the presidency. And these are referred to as inherent powers and are most often asserted by presidents in time of war or national emergency. President Lincoln relied upon a claim of inherent power to raise an army after the fall of Fort Sumter. Similarly, Presidents Roosevelt, Truman, and both Presidents Bush claimed inherent powers to defend the nation. Since the Korean War, Presidents have used their claim of inherent powers along with their constitutional powers, commander-in-chief, 
to bypass the constitutional provision giving Congress the power to declare war. So the difference between inherent and implied powers is often subtle. The two are frequently jointly claimed in support of the presidential action. And implied powers can be traced to the powers expressed in the actual language of the Constitution. Inherent powers, on the other hand, derive from national sovereignty. So, under international law and custom, sovereign states possess a number of inherent rights and powers. The most important of these are the right to engage in relations with other nations. So the right of self-defense against attacks from other states and the right to curb internal violence and unrest. So most presidents believe that they and only they are constitutionally authorized to manage the nation's relations with foreign states. But the Supreme Court has taken an expansive view in a very famous Curtis Wright decision, which cites uh, John Marshall in support of the idea that the president possesses broad, inherent power in the making of foreign policy. And a number of presidents have claimed that the presidency also possessed inherent powers in military affairs and in dealing with domestic emergencies, powers that were not necessarily spelled out in the Constitution or sanctioned by law. And Congress has tried to place some limits on powers that presidents claim to inherit. One example is the case of emergency powers. Presidents believe they have the inherent power to deal with emergencies, but Congress has, by statute, sought to circumscribe and guide the use of these powers. Now, an emergency declaration relating to foreign threats allows the president to embargo trade, seize foreign assets, and prohibit transactions with whatever foreign nations are involved. During a state of emergency, constitutional rights, including the right of habeas corpus, may be suspended. An emergency declaration, however, does not remain in force indefinitely. Such a declaration remains in force for only one year unless it is renewed by the president. All right, and we're back. So now we're going to look at the presidency as an institution. So after considering and rejecting the idea of a three-person executive or a multi-headed executive council, the framers of the Constitution created the unitary or one-person executive because they thought this would make the presidency a more energetic institution that would be better able to deal efficiently with the nation's concerns. And nevertheless, since the ratification of the Constitution, the president has been joined by thousands of officials and staffers who work for, assist, or advise the chief executive. And collectively, all these individuals could be said to make up the institutional presidency and to get the president capacity for action that no single individual, however energetic, could then duplicate. And so the first component of the institutional presidency is the president's cabinet. 
So, in the American system of government, the cabinet is the traditional but informal sorry, designation for the heads of all the major federal government departments. And the cabinet has no constitutional status. So, unlike in Great Britain and many other parliamentary countries where the cabinet is the government, the American cabinet is not a collective body. It means but makes no decisions as a group. Each appointment must be approved by the Senate, but cabinet members are not responsible to the Senate or to Congress at large. However, cabinet secretaries and their deputies frequently testify before congressional committees to justify budgets and policy objectives or explain policies or recent major events or issues. All U.S. cabinet departments and about half the other agencies were created by acts of Congress. The remaining agencies were created by executive order, the orders of department secretaries, or through reorganization of existing agencies. Major agencies created by executive order include the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, and the Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA. Presidents have claimed the power to create agencies in Congress as acquiesced by providing funding. Each of the 15 government departments is led by a secretary who is a member of the president's cabinet. Reporting to the secretary is a deputy secretary, while individual offices and activities are led by undersecretaries and assistant secretaries. The major independent agencies, such as the Social Security Administration, are usually headed by a senior official whose title might be commissioner, administrator, or director, and who is in turn supported by deputies and assistant deputies. Government departments range in size from the tiny Department of Education, which employs only about 4,200 individuals, to the massive Department of Defense, DOD, which oversees some 700,000 civilian employees and 1.3 million military personnel. The DOD is also responsible for maintaining the military readiness of the 1.1 million Reserve and National Guard troops. The independent agencies also vary in size. The Social Security Administration employs about 60,000 individuals, while some of the smaller agencies are staffed by only a few dozen individuals. The White House staff is composed mainly of analysts and advisors, although many of the top White House staff members hold such titles as Advisor to the President, Assistant to the President, Deputy Assistant, and Special Assistant for a particular task or sector, the judgments and advice they are supposed to provide are a good deal broader and more generally political than those coming from the executive office of the president or from the cabinet departments. The members of the White House staff also tend to be more closely associated with the president than our other presidentially appointed officials. This is especially true in the Trump White House, where the president's daughter Ivanka is an assistant to the president and her husband Jared Kushner is a senior advisor to the president. Created in 1939, the executive office of the president called the EOP, is a major part of the institutional presidency. Somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 highly specialized people work for EOP agencies. The importance of each agency in the EOP varies according to the personal orientation of each president. The most important and largest EOP agency is the Office of Management and Budget, or OMB. Its roles in preparing the national budget, designing the president's program, reporting on agency activities, and overseeing regulatory proposals connect the OMB to every conceivable presidential responsibility. <clears throat> the status and power of the OMB has grown in importance with each successive president, and the director of the OMB is now one of the most powerful officials in Washington. At one time, the process of budgeting 
was a bottom-up procedure with expenditure and program requests passing from the lowest bureaus through the department to clearance in the OMB and thence to Congress where each agency could be called in to explain what its original request was before the OMB revised it. Now the budgeting process is top-down. The OMB sets the term of discourse for agencies as well as for Congress. The staff of the Council of Economic Advisors, CEA, constantly analyzes the economy and economic trends in order to help the president anticipate events rather than waiting and reacting to them. The Council on Environmental Quality was designed to do for environmental issues what the CEA does for economic issues. The National Security Council, NSC, is composed of designated cabinet officials who meet regularly with the president to give advice on the large national security picture. The staff at the NSC assimilates and analyzes data from all intelligence gathering agencies. In some administrations, the head of the NSC, the president's national security advisor, has held the president's confidence and been a more important figure in the making of American foreign and military policy than the cabinet secretaries in these domains. Henry Kissinger, President Nixon's national security advisor, was such an individual. Other national security advisors have been disappointments to the presidents who appointed them. The vice presidency is a constitutional anomaly, even though the office was created along with the presidency by the Constitution. The vice president exists for two purposes only, to succeed the president in the case of death, resignation, or incapacity, and to preside over the Senate, casting a tie-breaking vote when necessary. The main value of the vice president as a political resource for the president is electoral. Traditionally, presidential candidates choose running mates who can win the support of at least one state, preferably a large one, that may not otherwise support the ticket. It is very doubtful that John Kennedy would have won in 1960 without his vice presidential candidate, Lyndon Johnson, and the contribution Johnson made to winning in Texas. Another traditional guideline holds that the vice presidential nominee should provide some regional balance and, wherever possible, ideological or ethnic balance as well. Third, or so back in 2016, Donald Trump, he chose Governor Mike Pence of Indiana as his running mate for a number of reasons. So first, Pence was a former host of conservative radio and television talk shows, talk shows, uh, well-known among conservatives. Pence served in Congress for 12 years. He worked to reassure skeptical party leaders that Trump was a qualified candidate. And Pence is a devout Christian who is very well regarded by social conservatives. So as vice president, Pence is often the person Trump relies on to smooth the relations with Republican members of Congress. And the vice president is also important because in the event of the death or incapacity of the president, he or she will succeed to the nation's highest office. And during the course of American history, eight vice presidents have had to replace presidents who died in office. And until the ratification of the 25th Amendment in 1965, the succession of the president to the presidency was a tradition launched by John Tyler when he assumed the presidency after William Henry Harrison's death, rather than a constitutional or statutory requirement. The 25th Amendment codified this tradition by providing that the pre- vice president would assume the presidency in the event of the chief executive's death or incapacity and setting forth the procedures that would be followed. It also provides that if the vice presidency becomes vacant, the president will nominate an individual who must be confirmed by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. 
So, the president serves as both chief executive and chief of state. The equivalent of Great Britain's prime minister and monarch rolled into one. So, simultaneously leading the government and representing the nation at official ceremonies and functions. Because they are generally associated exclusively with the head of state aspect of America's presidency, presidential spouses are usually not subject to the same sort of media scrutiny or partisan attack as that aimed at the president. Traditionally, most first ladies have limited their activities to the ceremonial portion of the presidency, greeting foreign dignitaries, visiting other countries, and attending important national ceremonies. Some first spouses, however, have had considerable influence over policy. During the 19th century, Congress was America's dominant institution of government, and members of Congress sometimes treated the president with disdain. Today, however, no one would assert that the presidency is unimportant. Presidents seek to dominate the policy-making process and claim the power to lead the nation in time of war. The expansion of presidential power over the course of the past century has come about not by accident, but as the result of an ongoing effort by successive presidents to enlarge the powers of the office. Generally, presidents can expand their power in two primary ways, through popular mobilization and through the administration. First, Presidents may use popular appeals to create a mass base of support that will allow them to dominate their political foes, a tactic called going public. Second, presidents may seek to bolster their control of establishing established executive agencies or to create new administrative institutions and procedures that will reduce their dependence on Congress and give them a more independent governing and policy-making capability. Perhaps the most obvious example of this is the use of executive orders to achieve policy goals in lieu of seeking to persuade Congress to enact legislation. Presidents do have a third, less reliable tool, their political party. Most presidents have relied on their own party to implement their legislative agenda. And so as a party, although a party is valuable to the chief executive, it has not been a fully reliable presidential tool. In, president, in America's system of separated powers, the president's party may be in the minority in Congress and unable to do much for the chief executive's programs. As a result, contemporary presidents are more likely to use the two other methods, popular mobilization and executive administration, to achieve their political goals. In the 19th century, it was considered inappropriate for presidents to engage in personal campaigning on their own behalf or in support of programs and policies. In the 20th century, though, popular mobilization has become a favored weapon in the political arsenals of most presidents. For example, in his famous fireside chats, President FDR's voice could be heard in every living room in the country discussing programs and policies generally assuring Americans that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was aware of their difficulties and working diligently towards solutions. Every president since FDR has sought to craft a public relations strategy that would emphasize the incumbent's strengths and maximize his popular appeal. Now, President Obama was the first chief executive to make full use of another new communication medium, the internet. Drawing on the interactive tools of the webs, Obama's 2008 and 2012 campaigns changed the way politicians organized supporters, advertised to voters, defend against attacks, and communicate with their constituents. And the internet has changed not only the way modern presidents campaign, but also how they govern. The WhiteHouse.gov website keeps the president's 
constituents abreast of his policy agenda with a weekly streaming video addressed by the president, press briefings, speeches and remarks, a daily blog, photos of the president, the White House schedule, and other information. Virtually everything the president does is recorded online. YouTube aired Obama's press conferences and public appearances on a daily basis. Every presidential address is now streamed live online. And Obama also created a website that allowed citizens to submit petitions to the White House. Any petition receiving 100,000 signatures was slated for review by the administration and a response issued. Circumventing television and other traditional media, the internet allows the president to broadcast his policy ideas directly to the citizens. There are some limits, though. Some presidents have been able to make effective use of popular appeals to overcome congressional opposition. Popular support, though, has not been a firm foundation for presidential power. So, for example, President George W. Bush, he maintained an approval rating over 70% for more than a year following the 9-11 attacks. By the end of 2005, though, his approval rating dropped to 39% as a result of the growing unpopularity of the Iraq War, his inept handling of hurricane relief, and a number of White House scandals, including the conviction of Vice President Cheney's chief of staff on charges of lying to a federal grand jury. Now, contemporary presidents have increased the administrative capabilities of their office in three ways. First, they enhanced the reach and power of the EOP. Second, they've sought to increase White House control over the federal bureaucracy. Third, they have expanded the role of executive orders and other instruments of direct presidential governance. Taken together, these three components of what might be called the White House administrative strategy have been have given presidents the capacity to achieve their programmatic and policy goals even when they are unable to secure congressional approval. So, some recent presidents have been able to accomplish a great deal with remarkably little congressional, partisan, or even public support. The EOP has grown from six administrative assistants in 1939 to several hundred employees working directly for the president in the White House office, along with some 2,500 individuals staffing the several divisions of the executive office. The creation and growth of the White House staff have given the president an enormously enhanced capacity to gather information, plan programs and strategies, communicate with constituencies, and exercise supervision over the executive branch. The staff multiplies the president's eyes, ears, and arms, becoming a critical instrument of presidential power. In particular, the OMB, an agency within the EOP, serves as a potential instrument of presidential control over federal spending and hence a mechanism through which the White House has greatly expanded its power. The OMB has the capacity to analyze and approve all legislative proposals, not only budgetary requests emanating from all federal agencies before being submitted to Congress. This procedure, now a matter of routine, greatly enhances the president's control over the entire executive branch. All legislation originating in the White House, as well as all executive orders, also go through the OMB. Thus, through one White House agency, the president has the means to exert major influence over the flow of money and the shape and content of national legislation. A second instrument that presidents have used to increase their power and reach is an agency within OMB called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. 
which supervises the process of regulatory review through which presidents have sought to seize control of rulemaking by the agencies of the executive branch. Whenever Congress enacts a statute, its actual implementation requires the promulgation of hundreds of rules by the agency charged with administering the law and giving effect to the will of Congress. The agency rulemaking process is itself governed by a number of statutory requirements concerning public notice, most importantly publication in the Federal Register, hearings, and appeals, but once completed and published in the massive Code of Federal Regulations, administrative rules have the effect of law and will be enforced by the federal courts. The discretion Congress delegates to administrative agencies has provided recent presidents with an important avenue for expanding their own power. Beginning with little fanfare during the Nixon administration, presidents, through regulatory review, gradually have endeavored to take control of the rulemaking process and to use it as a quasi-legislative mechanism through which they can engage in lawmaking without the interference of the legislature. A third mechanism through which contemporary presidents have sought to enhance their power to govern unilaterally is through the use of executive orders and other forms of presidential decrees, including executive agreements, national security findings and directives, proclamations, reorganization plans, and memoranda. An executive order is a direct presidential director to the bureaucracy to undertake some action, bypassing Congress and the legislative process. Executive orders have a long history in the United States and have been the instruments for a number of important policies, including the purchase of Louisiana, the annexation of Texas, the emancipation of the slaves, wartime internment of Japanese Americans, the desegregation of the military, the initiation of affirmative action, and the creation of a number of federal agencies, including the EPA, the FDA, and the Peace Corps. Historically, executive orders were most often used during times of war or national emergency. In recent years, though, executive orders have become routine instruments of presidential governance rather than emergency wartime measures. And presidential use of executive orders is constrained by law. When presidents issue executive orders, in principle, they do so pursuant to the powers granted to them by the Constitution or delegated to them by Congress. When presidents issue orders, they generally must state the constitutional or statutory basis for their actions. When the courts, where the courts have found no constitutional or statutory basis for a presidential order, they have invalidated it. Such cases, however, are rare. Generally, the judiciary has accepted executive orders as the law of the land. Executive orders are one form of presidential decree. Others include administrative orders, national security directives, presidential memoranda, presidential proclamations, and presidential findings. So, like executive orders, the other instruments establish policy and have the force of law, and presidents often use them interchangeably. Generally speaking, though, administrative orders apply to matters of administrative procedure and organization. Directives seem most often associated with national or homeland security, Memoranda are used to clarify or modify presidential positions and orders, and proclamations are usually used to give emphasis to an especially important presidential decree, such as Lincoln's proclamation emancipating all slaves.
to, nego- to negate congressional actions in which they objected, recent presidents have made frequent and calculated use of presidential signing statements when signing bills into law. The signing statement is an announcement made by the president at the time of signing a congressional enactment into law, but offers the president's interpretation of the law and usually innocuous remarks predicting the many benefits the new law will bring to the nation. Occasionally, presidents have used signing statements to point to sections of the law they have deemed improper or even unconstitutional and to instruct executive branch agencies how to execute the law. A final instrument of direct presidential governance is non-enforcement of statutes. Congress may make the law, but presidents implement and enforce it. If the president decides that a particular law is not to his liking and refuses to enforce it, Congress may find that its intent is stymied. Through the course of American history, party leadership and popular appeals have played important roles in presidential efforts to overcome political opposition, and both continue to be instruments of presidential power. Yet, as we have seen, in the modern era, presidents have not always been able to rely on support from their own parties, and the effects of popular appeals have often proven evanescent. The limitations of the alternatives have increasingly impelled presidents to try to expand the administrative capabilities of the office in their own capacity for unilateral action as means of achieving their policy goals. In recent decades, the expansion of the executive office, the development of regulatory review, and the use of executive orders and signing statements have given presidents a substantial capacity to achieve significant policy results despite congressional opposition to their legislative agendas. In principle, perhaps, Congress could respond more vigorously to unilateral policymaking by the president than it has. Certainly, a Congress willing to impeach a president should have the medal to overturn the chief executive's administration directives. But the president has significant advantages in such struggles with Congress. In battles over presidential directives and orders, Congress is on the defensive, reacting to presidential initiatives. Framers of the Constitution saw energy, or the ability to take the initiative as a key feature of executive power. When the president takes action by issuing an order or an administrative directive, Congress must respond through the cumbersome and time-consuming lawmaking process, overcome internal divisions, and enact legislation that the president may ultimately veto. Moreover, as the president or the political scientist Terry Moe has argued, in such battles, Congress faces a significant collective action problem. Members are likely to be more sensitive to the substance of a president's actions and its short-term effects on their constituents than to the more general long-term implications of presidential power for the vitality of their institution. From the Constitution, presidents derive expressed, implied, and delegated powers. Claims of inherent powers are derived from the basic principles of national sovereignty coupled with the constitutional grant of executive power. But while the framers sought an energetic executive, they were also concerned that executive power could be abused and might stifle citizens' liberties. To guard against this possibility, the framers contrived a number of checks on executive power. The president's term was limited to four years, though with the possibility of reappointment. The Congress is empowered to impeach and remove the president, 
to reject presidential appointments, and refuse to ratify treaties, to refuse to enact laws requested by the president, to deny funding for the president's programs, and to override presidential vetoes of congressional enactments. The framers viewed the threat of impeachment as an important check upon executive power. The Constitution provides that a president may be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors. Such offenses are to be charged by the House and tried in the Senate, with a Chief Justice presiding and a two-thirds vote needed for a conviction. During the course of American history, only two presidents, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, have been impeached, though neither was convicted. Now, we actually have technically four presidents. Yeah, because Nixon, uh, he most likely would have been impeached for his misdeeds in the Watergate affair, but he resigned before that could happen. And Donald Trump was impeached twice. So, yeah. But the requirement that the Senate concur in treaties of presidential appointments was seen by the framers as another important check on executive power. However, in recent years, severe partisan disagreements often have led presidents to resort to recess appointments. These are authorized by Article 2, Section 2, which states the president shall have the power to fill up all vacancies, which may happen during the recess of the Senate, by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. Until recent years, recess appointments were made only between Senate sessions or when the Senate was adjourned for lengthy periods. However, recess appointments have become more frequent and the Senate has resorted to a strategy similar to the one employed to prevent pocket vetoes. One senator is assigned to the task of calling the chamber to order for a few moments every day for a pro forma session during periods of recess so that the president cannot claim the Senate was closed for business. Presidents have viewed this procedure as nothing more than a subterfuge since the Senate is incapable of actually conducting business during these periods. And, of course, under the Constitution, only the Congress would have the power to enact legislation or to levy taxes or to appropriate funds. Indeed, so many were the constitutional checks on executive power that some delegates to the Constitutional Convention feared that the executive would be too weak and the potential energy of executive power lost. As we've seen, however, from many actions of presidents in recent years, presidential power has grown significantly beyond the framers' vision. So I hope you guys enjoyed talking about the presidency. In the next segments, we're going to look at the bureaucracy, which are all those lovely agencies. Hello, in this segment of the political Politicast, we're going to talk about the bureaucracy in America. So, the bureaucracy, like the definition itself, it's the very complex structure of all the offices, tasks, rules, and principles of organization that is employed by a large-scale institutions and to coordinate the work of their personnel. And the bureaucracy plays a very crucial role in administering public policy on the ground. Bureaucrats carry out the normal work of government, implementing all the policies that Congress and the President have passed and that the court system may have adjudicated. So, at its best, 
Bureaucracy ensures fair, accountable administration performed by expert professionals. To provide services, government bureaucracies employ specialists like meteorologists, doctors, and scientists. So to do their jobs effectively, they require resources and tools. They have to coordinate their work with others. They have to effectively reach out to the public. And so bureaucracy is a means of coordinating all the different parts that have to work together for the government to provide these useful services. And bureaucrats, you know, they execute and implement laws, determine who is available for things like Medicare, study whether a new medicine is safe and effective. They deliver mail tell you know campers where they can build a fire exactly while they're camping in the parks all these things so let's as they're carrying out all their responsibilities implementing and enforcing laws making rules and innovating they exercise discretion and help define how public policy gets expressed now congress is responsible for making the laws but in most cases, legislation only sets the broad parameters for government action. Bureaucracies are responsible for filling in the blanks by determining how the law should be implemented. That requires they draw up detailed rules that guide the process of implementation and to play a key role in enforcing the laws. Congress needs the bureaucracy to engage in rulemaking and implementation for reasons that are very important. For instance, one is they employ people that have more specialized expertise in specific policy areas than members of Congress do. Decisions about how to achieve goals from managing various things, it all rests on the judgment of these specialized experts. A second reason that Congress needs the bureaucracy is because the updating legislation can take many years. So you need some of that bureaucratic flexibility that can ensure the laws are administered in ways that take new conditions into account. So finally, members of Congress often prefer to delegate politically difficult decision-making to bureaucrats. And so the rulemaking process, it can be a very political one. Once a new law is passed, the relevant agency is going to study the legislation and propose a set of rules to guide that implementation. The proposed rules are open to comment by anyone who wants to weigh in. Uh, people that commonly submit comments are going to be representatives for regulated industries, advocates of all sorts. But anyone that wants to can go to the website www.regulations.gov to read the proposed rules, enter comments, and view the comments of others. But once the rules are approved, they are published in the Federal Register and they have the force of law. So in addition to rulemaking, bureaucracies play an essential role in enforcing the laws, therefore exercising considerable power over private actors. And a good case study of the important role agencies can play is the story of how ordinary federal bureaucrats created the internet. So what became the internet was developed largely by the U.S. Department of Defense and defense considerations still shape the best basic structure of the internet. 
1957, immediately following the profound American embarrassment over the Soviet Union's launching of Sputnik, the first satellite to orbit the Earth, Congress authorized the establishment of the Advanced Research Projects Agency, ARPA, to develop, among other things, a means of maintaining communications in the event of a strategic attack on the existing telecommunications network, the telephone system. And since the telephone network was highly centralized and therefore could have been completely disabled by a single attack, ARPA design, developed a decentralized, highly redundant network with an improved probability of functioning after an attack. The full design, called ARPANET, took almost a decade to create. By 1971, over 20 universities were connected to the ARPANET. The forerunner to the internet was then born. So, bureaucrats are considered members of the civil service and work under the merit system that was created by the Civil Service Act of 1883. With this act, the federal government attempted to imitate business by requiring appointees to public office be qualified for the job to which they were appointed. And the goal was to end the appointments under the spoil system that awarded jobs based on political connections and to create a system of competitive exams through which the very best candidates would be hired for every job. So, kind of in sum, you know, the national government, it is indeed very large, but it hasn't really been growing any faster than the economy or society. Bureaucracy keeps pace with society, despite people seeming dislike of it, because, you know, airport control towers, prisons, social security system, other essential elements of modern day society cannot be operated without bureaucracy. And indeed, the recent growth of government spending does not reflect a growth in the federal bureaucracy or even growth in federal contractors, but rather an increase in payments to individuals for valued social programs such as Social Security and Medicare. And Medicare, for those that aren't here in America that may be listening, Medicare uh, provides health care for people over the age of 65. So cabinet departments, agencies, and bureaus, there are they're all the operating parts of the bureaucratic whole. So at the top is the head of the department, who is a secretary. Below the secretary is the deputy, deputy, ooh, deputy secretary. And below them are the undersecretaries. So operating agencies are the third tier. and But they're the highest level of responsibility for the actual programs around which the entire department is organized. So, some are bureau level, that they might call it at this level. So, each bureau level agency usually operates under a statute that's enacted by Congress that set up the agency and gave it its authority and jurisdiction. So, uh, bureau is also the uh, conventional term for this level of administrative agency, even though many agencies are their supporters have preferred over the years to adopt a more politically palatable designation such as service or administration. But not all government agencies are part of cabinet departments. Some independent agencies are set up by Congress outside the departmental structure altogether, even though the president appoints and directs the heads of these agencies. Independent agencies usually have broad powers to provide public services that are either too expensive or too important to be left to private initiatives.
government corporations are a third type of agency, government agency, but they're more like private businesses and performing and charging for a market service like tr maybe transporting railroad passengers such as Amtrak. Uh, fourth type of agency is the Independent Regulatory Commission, given broad discretion to make rules. So the first regulatory agencies established by Congress started with the Interstate Commerce Commission in 1887, but they were set up as independent regulatory commissions because Congress recognized that regulatory agencies are many legislatures. Their rules are exactly the same as legislation, but require the kind of expertise and full-time attention that is beyond the capacity of Congress. So, kind of some goals. What are the goals of the federal bureaucracy? So, one of the most important activities of the federal bureaucracy is to promote the public good by providing services. Building infrastructure and enforcing regulations that serve citizen needs. And departments have important res responsibilities for promoting public well-being. Ensuring the public welfare is also the main activity of agencies and other departments. And multiple independent regulatory agencies enforce regulations that aim to safeguard the public health and welfare. And federal bureaucracy also promotes the public good through watchdog activities of many regulatory agencies, which include the FDA, uh, OSHA, and the FDA is within the HHS, the Health and Human Services. OSHA is under the Department of Labor. There's numerous independent regulatory commissions like Consumer Product Safety Commission, Federal Communications Commission, the EPA. And an agency or commission is regulatory if Congress delegates to it relatively broad powers over a sector of the economy or a type of commercial activity and authorizes it to make rules within that jurisdiction. Rules made by regulatory agencies have the force and effect of law. So some of the public agencies that provide services are tied to a specific group or segment of American society that is often thought as, of as the main clientele of that agency. Um, we tend to think of it as an iron triangle. So, an iron triangle is a pattern of stable relationships among an agency in the executive branch, a congressional committee or subcommittee, and one or more organized groups of agency clientele. So, one of the big remarkable features of American federalism is that most vital agencies for providing security for the American people, like the police, are located in state and local governments, but some agencies vital to maintaining national security are located in the national government, and they can be grouped into two categories, agencies to confront threats to internal national security and agencies to defend American security from external threats. And so the task of maintaining domestic security changed dramatically after the 9-11 attacks. The creation of the Department of Homeland Security in late 2002 signaled the high priority that domestic security would now have. The orientation of domestic agencies also shifted as the agencies geared up to prevent terrorism, a very different task from their former charge of investigating crime. 
With this shift in responsibility came broad new powers, many of them controversial, including the power to detain terrorist suspects and to engage in extensive domestic intelligence gathering about possible threats. So, two departments occupy center stage in maintaining external national security, the Departments of State and Defense. So, the State Department's primary goal is diplomacy. So, as the most visible public representative of American diplomacy, the Secretary of State works to promote American perspectives and interests in the world. The Defense Department is charged with providing the military forces needed to deter war and protect the nation. Headquartered in the Pentagon across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C., the Department of Defense, DOD, is one of the largest bureaucracies in the world, composed of two million people across five sets of institutions. The President, as Commander-in-Chief, appoints the Secretary of Defense, whose office the Secretary of Defense, OSD, plans and carries out the nation's security policies as directed by the Secretary and President. And the Department of Defense is an enormously complex organization. It has been reformed several times to increase efficiency and effectiveness. Now, of all the agencies in the federal bureaucracy, those charged with providing national security most often come into conflict with the norms and expectations of American democracy. Two issues in particular arise as these agencies work to ensure national security. One, the trade-offs between respecting the personal rights of individuals versus protecting the general public. And two, the need for secrecy in matters of national security versus the public's right to know what the government is doing. Needless to say, Americans often disagree about what activities the government should be able to pursue to defend U.S. national security. And protecting national security often requires the government to conduct its activities in secret. And as, but as Americans have come to expect a more open government, many believe that federal agencies charged with national security keep too many secrets from the American public. And now we have the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, from 1966. Strengthened in 1974 after Watergate, it allows any person to request classified documents and information from any federal agency. The information obtained often reveals unflattering or unsuccessful aspects of national security activities. Now, with our capitalist economic system, the government does not directly run the economy, yet many federal government activities are critical to maintaining a strong economy. And foremost among these are the agencies responsible for fiscal and monetary policy. So, fiscal policy can refer to any government policy having to do with public finance, but Americans often reserve fiscal for taxing and spending policies and use monetary for policies having to do with banks, credit, and currency. So, while the responsibility for making fiscal policy lies with Congress, the administration of it occurs mainly in the Treasury Department. 
With monetary policy, a key monetary agency is the Federal Reserve System, simply called the Fed, which is headed by the Federal Reserve Board. And the Fed has authority over interest rates, lending activities of the nation's most important banks. Uh, the Fed was established by Congress in 1913 as a clearinghouse responsible for adjusting the supply of money and credit to the needs of commerce and industry in different regions of the country. They're also responsible for ensuring banks do not overextend themselves, a policy that guards against bank failures during a sudden economic scare, such as what occurred in 1929. And the Treasury and the Federal Reserve took center stage when a string of bank failures threatened economic catastrophe in 2008. These agencies designed a $700 billion bailout package and convinced Congress that a rapid response was needed to avert a worldwide depression. Although the Treasury and the Federal Reserve sprang into action when economic calamity loomed, critics charged that the crisis could have been prevented if the agencies had exercised more regulatory oversight over the financial sector during the previous decade. One of the first actions Congress took under President George Washington was to create the Department of the Treasury, and probably its oldest function is the collection of taxes on imports, called tariffs. Now part of the Department of Homeland Security, federal customs agents are located at every U.S. seaport and international airport to oversee the collection of tariffs. But far and away, the most important of the revenue agencies is the Inter Internal Revenue Service, a bureau within the Treasury Department. The IRS is the government agency that Americans love to hate. You know, the very nature of its work brings it into an adversarial relationship with vast numbers of Americans every year. Taxpayers complain about the IRS's needless complexity, its lack of sensitivity and responsiveness to individual taxpayers, its overall lack of efficiency. And such complaints led Congress to pass the IRS Restructuring and Reform Act of 1998, which instituted a number of new protections for taxpayers. Federal agencies also conduct programs designed to strengthen particular segments of the economy or to provide specific services aimed at strengthening the entire economy. So, just for example, created in 1889, the Department of Agriculture, it is the fourth oldest cabinet department. Its initial mission, to strengthen American agriculture by providing information about effective farming practices, reflected, reflected the enormous importance of farming in the American economy. And through its Agricultural Extension Service, the Department of Agriculture established a significant presence in rural areas throughout the country. At first glance, the Department of Transportation, which oversees the nation's highway and air traffic system, may seem to have little to do with economic development, but effective transportation is the backbone of a strong economy. The interstate highway system, for example, is widely acknowledged as a key factor in promoting economic growth in the decades after World War II. Jorge, up here, boy. Sorry, my dog just came in and he was shaking out. Come on, hop up. No? Okay. He's being a diva today, guys. Sorry. All right. So can the bureaucracy be reformed? 
Now, when citizens complain that government is too bureaucratic, what they often mean is that government bureaucracies seem inefficient, waste money, and perform poorly. The botched rollout of healthcare.gov, the federal government's online health insurance marketplace, handicapped the implementation of the Affordable Care Act when it opened and subsequently crashed the, in October 2013. And a report by the Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services concluded afterward that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services tasked with overseeing the website lack the necessary managerial and technical capacity and ignore warnings that the enormous software project was headed for trouble. In the waiting list scandal that rocked the Veterans Health Administration in 2014, some VHA hospitals that had not met the target of getting appointments for veterans within 14 days had created unofficial lists to make their waiting times look better. A VA audit and FBI investigation found that over 120,000 veterans were left waiting or never got appointments. Congress passed and President Obama signed new legislation in late 2014 that added funding, allowed some veterans to get private health care at government expense, and gave the VA secretary increased authority to fire poorly performing managers. So when citizens have negative personal experience with the federal government, mountains of forms to fill out lengthy waits and unsympathetic service, they wonder why the government can't do better. And the government has often sought to find ways to make the federal bureaucracy more efficient. So one example is the National Performance Review. The National Performance Review uh, was launched in 1993 under President Bill Clinton. It sought to prompt federal agencies to adopt flexible goal-driven practices. And Clinton promised the result would be a government that would work better and cost less. And virtually all observers agreed that the review made substantial progress. And in 2015, President Obama created a social and behavioral sciences team to help departments incorporate insights from behavioral science, how people make decisions and act on them to make government processes more efficient. So the team launched a number of experiments to improve services, such as an effort to boost military service members' enrollment in the government retirement savings program, which was lower than that of other federal employees. By requiring service members to make a choice as part of their orientation upon arrival at a new military base, the experiment increased enrollment by over 80%. Those are just some examples. So, Although streamlining efforts like Clinton's did help make government work more effectively, it did not institute the more sweeping approach to reform demanded by some political leaders. Reform had instead been pursued through efforts to terminate, devolve, or contract out government functions. And in general, democratic administrations have aimed at making the existing bureaucracy work more effectively, whereas Republican administrations have sought to sideline the bureaucracy, especially by contracting out government work to private companies. The only certain way to reduce the size of the bureaucracy is to eliminate programs through termination, a rare occurrence. And the overall difficulty in terminating bureaucracy is a reflection of Americans' love-hate relationship with the national government. So as antagonistic as Americans may be toward bureaucracy in general, they benefit from the services being rendered and the protections being offered by particular bureaucratic agencies. 
They fiercely defend their favorite agencies while perceiving no inconsistency in their hostility toward the bureaucracy in general. The next most effective approach to reduce the size of the federal bureaucracy is devolution, downsizing the federal bureaucracy by delegating the implementation of programs to state and local governments. Devolution often alters the pattern of who benefits most from government programs. Opponents of devolution in social policy, for example, charge that it reduces the ability of the government to remedy inequality. They argue that state governments, which cannot run deficits as the federal government does, and which have more limited taxing capabilities, will inevitably cut spending on programs that serve low-income residents. Often, the central aim of devolution is to provide more efficient and flexible government services. Yet, by its very nature, devolution entails variation across the states. In some states, government services may improve as a consequence of devolution. In other states, services may deteriorate as the states use devolution as an opportunity to cut spending and reduce services. So this is the dilemma that devolution poses. Up to a point, variation can be considered one of the virtues of federalism, but in a democracy, it is inherently dangerous to have large variations in the provisions of services and benefits. So most of what is called privatization is the provision of government goods and services by private contractors under direct government supervision. Except for top-secret strategic materials, virtually all military hardware, from boats to bullets, is produced on a privatized basis by private contractors. Research services worth billions of dollars are bought under contract by governments, from universities and from ordinary industrial corporations and private think tanks. Privatization simply means that a formerly public activity is picked up under contract by a private company or companies. But such programs are still very much government programs, paid for by government and supervised by government. Privatization downsizes the government only in that the workers providing the service are no longer counted as part of the government bureaucracy. Privatization may, mean, may not mean less government, but rather a different role for government, as managerial expertise is needed to write contracts and oversee private companies carrying out government work. managing the bureaucracy. So just as an example, we're going to look at 1937, President FDR, his Committee on Administrative Management officially addressed a plea that had been growing increasingly urgent. The president needs help. So the national government had grown rapidly during the preceding 25 years, but the structures and procedures necessary to manage the burgeoning executive branch had not yet been established. The response to the call for help for the president initially took the form of three management policies. All communications and decisions that related to executive policy decisions must pass through the executive office of the president, the EOP. Two, in order to cope with such a flow, the EOP must have an adequate staff of specialists in research, analysis, legislative, and legal writing, and public affairs. And three, the EOP must have additional staff to ensure that presidential decisions are made 
communicated to Congress and carried out by the appropriate agency. So the story of modern presidency can be told largely as a series of responses to the plea for managerial help as the scope of the federal government and presidential power has grown. The president heads the federal government, which is the largest employer in the country and the largest, largest purchaser of goods and services in the world. So kind of a CEO of the enormous organization, president may have goals associated with management, striving for efficiency and control, shaping policy outcomes. And presidents have several tools at their disposal. They have appointment power over the top layer of the executive branch, the political appointees who sit on top of the career civil service. They can issue executive orders, making policy and shaping the executive branch unilaterally. They can also alter an agency's budget or organizational scheme. Indeed, the presidency has been marked by waves of executive branch reorganization by presidents seeking to exert administrative and political control. After Roosevelt's reforms, perhaps the most important were those under President Jimmy Carter, whose reorganization of the civil service will long be recognized as one of the most significant contributions of his presidency. So we saw a third new agency, the Office of Personnel Management, was created to manage recruiting, testing, training, and the retirement system. So the Senior Executive Service, a top management rank for civil servants, was also created to recognize and foster public management as a profession and to facilitate the movement of super-grade career officials across agencies and departments. So subsequent presidents have tried to make their own mark. in different ways. So there's little evidence of the truly rogue bureaucracy that figures in the most extreme versions of conspiracy theories, but questions of who controls the bureaucracy and how much autonomy bureaucrats should have have occupied political scientists and government leaders for decades. Another level of control over the bureaucracy is Congress. So Congress passes legislation, which the bureaucracy must then implement the delegation derives from constitutionally mandated roles for each branch of government, right? And so one way that Congress can hold the bureaucracy accountable is oversight. Congressional committees and subcommittees have jurisdictions roughly parallel to one or more departments and agencies in the executive branch, and members of Congress who sit on these committees can develop expertise equal to that of the bureaucrats. The most visible indication of Congress's oversight efforts is the use of public hearings, before which bureaucrats and other witnesses are summoned to discuss and defend agency budgets and pass decisions. Studies show that congressional committee and subcommittee hearings and meetings grew quite dramatically in the late 1960s and 70s as Congress tried to keep pace with the expansion of the executive branch. This growth was specific, especially pronounced in the House, which conducts more total days of oversight hearings than the Senate. However, concern has grown in recent years about failures of oversight. There appears to be less police patrol oversight, regular or even preemptive hearings on agency operations, and more fire alarm oversight prompted by media attention or advocacy group complaints. And individual members of Congress can also uh, carry out oversight inquiries 
such standard congressional casework can address significant questions of public responsibility, even when they are motivated only by the demands of an individual constituent. Oversight also encompasses the communications between congressional staff and agency staff. Congress has created for itself three large agencies whose obligations are to engage in constant research on matters related to the executive branch. These are the General Accounting Office, or GAO, the Congressional Research Service, and the Congressional Budget Office, each designed to give Congress information independent of the information it can get directly from the executive branch through hearings and other communications. Another source of information for oversight is directly from citizens through the FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, which gives ordinary citizens the right to gain access to agency files and agency data. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. That was a look at the bureaucracy. So the next Politicast, the next episode is going to be on the federal courts. I hope you guys enjoyed it and have a great day.